This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Kunzman, the host of the New Books Network, and today we'll be talking with David Halperin about his <clears throat> new book, Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO. David Halperin taught Judaic studies in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill until his retirement in 2000. He also published books on Jewish mysticism and also his 2011 book, Journal of a UFO Investigator. You can also follow him at his blog, where he blogs about UFOs, religion, and related subjects at www.davidhalperin.net. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we usually like to start out these interviews by asking our guests just their general background and how, did they, how they came to write the current work that they did. So David, how... What, what is your background, and how did you write this fascinating book, Intimate Alien? Well, I started writing it, I think, about 60 years ago, that I was 15 years old. I had recently become a ufologist, and we can talk a little bit more about just how I became a ufologist. And I was going to write a book, I think, with a, together with a friend of mine called The Flying Saucer Mystery, in which we would explore the different theories about what flying saucers, as the standard term was back then, and try to come to a solution of the mystery. Uh in the meantime, I grew up. I set aside flying saucers. I went to college and began to devote myself to the study of Semitic languages and classical languages. And focused eventually on Judaica. That was what I got my PhD in. In the meantime, I was had special interest in religious traditions of heavenly ascent and otherworldly journeys, as well as the visions of the prophet Ezekiel, which... I think I recognized, even at the time, were my old ufology under more respectable guises. And then I 
got my PhD in Judaica. I started teaching in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I found myself facing the question of what had my teen ufology meant to me. I no longer believed in UFOs. Gradually, my belief had faded, but they continued to fascinate me. There was a spell that they cast over me, and I wanted to understand what that spell had been for me as a teenager and what it continued to be for millions of others. And although the demise of the UFO has been repeatedly prophesied, along with the disclosure that UFOs are real space visitors, and the government has always been hiding that from us, neither one of these prophecies has ever come true. I do not think either of them ever will. So I began to think this was something worth writing a book on, not the same book that I would have written when I was 15 years old, but a book that looked back over the same beliefs, the same traditions, and tried to make sense of them in a way that those who didn't accept the literal existence of UFOs could understand their magic. And that's what I've tried to do with Intimate Alien. So at the beginning of the book, you do give like an autobiographical gloss of your early years as a teenage UFOologist. And you mentioned two books of different tendencies, one by uh, Carl Jung and one by Donald Menzel. When you were a teenager when you when you were a teenage ufologist which tendency did you lean more towards the scientific one or the mythical archetypal one well the scientific one i was not prepared to accept because menzel was the greatest debunker of our time uh and jung i simply didn't understand I don't know that most 15-year-olds could understand Jung. It was only later when I met the famous Jacques Vallée in, at Stanford in California, and at this time I was about 22 years old, that I began to think, hey, Jung was saying some important things about UFOs that I need to digest and to try to understand. So 
what was the pro like what was the process or what sort of activities did you do in your younger years when you were a ufologist like what organizations were involved what 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 were your uh participation in those organizations well let's start out with the new jersey association on aerial phenomena have you ever heard of that one i have not well, neither is anybody else, or almost anybody else. Uh, it was started uh, when I was, I guess, 15 years old by a fella about the same age in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And when he retired from the field, as so many of us ufologists did, to go to college, I became the director, and I actually published three issues of a newsletter. Uh, after, after I no longer had the energy to produce the newsletter, NJAAP uh, vanished from, from the UFO scene, and I do not think any trace of it has remained. I was also the member of a rather larger and more influential group called NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Uh, you may gather that NJAP's name was an imitation of NICAP's. And this was a group headquartered in Washington, which sort of was devoted to exploring UFOs, but more to their particular hobby horse of lobbying Congress to hold hearings to force the Air Force to reveal what it knew about UFOs, but preferred to keep secret. Uh, as far as I know, they never got anywhere with this project. And it's only been recently, ironically, that congressional hearings about UFOs have actually taken place. I, I know that NICAP became defunct. I do not know just when. I think it was around the end of the 60s. And do you follow any, um, or have you followed any current UFOlogy uh, organizations, organizations like MUFON or any other ones? And have they, are there issues or are, are there views of UFOs progressed any from uh, when you engaged in that topic? I don't think so. I do not think that those who believe in UFOs, that is to say, who think we are being visited from outer space or perhaps from another dimension or perhaps from our own descendants who have mastered time travel and are coming back to interact with us, I do not think that their understanding of the phenomenon has progressed at all since it began in really in 1947. 
uh, the the Menzel was the chief debunker of UFOs back in the 1950s and the early 60s. His place was later taken by a man named Philip Kloss. I mean, one of the fascinating things about ufology as a cultural phenomenon is that it is it has generated its own opposition, its own its own individuals and groups that are emotionally invested in UFOs, but with a minus sign attached rather than a plus sign, and Kloss came up with something called the Kloss Curse. And this was a curse. I mean, it was he, he did this sort of tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, the, but there was a serious uh, subtext to it. That the curse, wa- the, the curse was directed against all of the ufologists who had mocked and abused him over the years. And the content of the curse was that at your dying day, you will not know anything more about UFOs than you do today. And as you expire, you will remember this curse, and you will know that what you have done with UFOs has been a waste. And I think, in truth, if we are pursuing the conventional idea that UFOs exist and are visitors from outer space, really nothing more has been learned about them and nothing will be learned about them uh, because they don't exist. However, if we perceive UFOs as visitors from inner space representations of our own longings, of our own fears, coming perhaps with messages for us that we could not otherwise hear, then I think it's possible to give ever deeper accounts of the phenomenon and what it means. And I believe this is what I have done in Intimate Alien. You, at one point, I, I wrote in the introduction that the essential question to ask about UFOs is not what are they or where do they come from or how do they fly. It is what do they mean. So this brings us in part to the part of the book where you give case studies and historical precedents of UFO abductions and things like that. And you highlight the probably the most famous one in North America, the Barney and Betty Hill incident. And you give, uh, you give an analysis of that incident and what it, and what it could mean. Could you unpack that a little for us? Yes, I mean, I'm not sure that all of your listeners are familiar with the story. Uh, it comes from the 1960s, and uh, whether 
you could you could say that it happened. The event happened in September 1961, which is when Betty and Barney Hill had their UFO encounter. Or I would be more inclined to date it to February 1964, when they began to relive their encounter under hypnosis. Betty and Barney Hill were a a, a New England couple from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, who were in all but two respects fairly ordinary New Englanders in early middle age. And these two respects were, first of all, that they were a mixed-race couple. Betty was white, Barney was black. And in in the 1960s, that was not as acceptable in our culture as it is today. The other is that they did have, in September of 1961, some sort of encounter with a mysterious aerial object that haunted them for the next few years and eventually drove them to seek hypnotic therapy with an expert in therapeutic hypnosis, Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was acknowledged to be a first-rate psychiatrist and who had no interest whatsoever in UFOs. His only interest was in helping his patients. And Betty and Barney came to... uh, Benjamin Simon, he put them, first Barney, then Betty, into hypnotic trances, and especially from Barney, a terrifying story began to emerge of their having been stopped on a lonely road, coming back, crossing New Hampshire's White Mountains from Canada and taken aboard the UFO. Now, to me, there are two questions, or two big questions to be asked about this experience. First, what was the light that they saw that followed them? And a man named James McDonald has retraced their steps and I find quite convincingly identified it as the electric light on a lookout tower near the top of one of the mountains that they were driving through. But that, to me, is the less interesting of the questions. The more interesting is, where did their memories of abduction come from? And in my book, I trace out the parallels between what Barney and, to a lesser extent, Betty experienced during the abduction and what Barney's ancestors are likely to have experienced 
when in Africa they were abducted, taken to an alien craft, uh, they made to undergo intrusive physical examinations, as Betty and Barney were, and then carried off to an alien world. This is the archaic memory that I think is surfacing in their story of abduction. And it became like a seed planted in the ground of this country. And in the following decades, probably thousands of people began to remember that they too had undergone such horrifying experiences, such, such horrific experiences, and many of them went to hypnotists to try to recover what they supposed were the repressed details of their experiences. Most of these hypnotists were not, like Benjamin Simon, expert psychiatrists. They were amateurs with an axe to grind. And the grinding of that axe filled multiple books, particularly back in the 1990s, which was the heyday of UFO abductions in this country. Do you have any speculation why it was the 90s? And why was it the heyday? Was it something particular about that decade? Yeah. I think that, 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 that there were a number of preconditions for that. One was an altered perception of psychotherapy. Uh, that the therapist's office, which had previously been regarded with a certain degree of contempt. I mean, the classic expression of that contempt is, you remember Lucy and Peanuts with her lemonade stand, psychiatric help, five cents? Uh, that that was, that people tended to think of psychotherapy as something perhaps a bit ridiculous, a pompous character with a beard, uh, uh, pontificating to someone lying on a couch. And then about 19, uh, in the late 70s perhaps, attitudes shifted and the therapist's office became a place where in the words of Ann Landers, you, d you will find the truth, quoting the Gospel of John, you will find the truth, and the truth will set you free. And one of the manifestations of that assumption was the furor over supposedly repressed memories of child sexual abuse which developed, peaked, 
somewhat before the U- the UFO abduction uh, experience, the 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 popularity of UFO abductions, and then became not entirely justly, I think, discredited. So that I think the 90s, that, that the ground was prepared for the 90s, for, for the UFO abduction flourishing in the 90s, uh, partly by the new attitude towards psychotherapy and partly uh, by the popularity of the idea that many of us have been sexually abused and then repressed the experience. It's what I called in the book the quest for the unremembered, that there's something that's outside our memory yet is vital for understanding who we are and what we feel. Am I, am I coming across clearly here? And in, in uh, another part of the book, you do you do sort of merge your early interest of UFOs to your professional work, which was in Judaica. Uh, how, how did those two things, I guess, become? Uh, how 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 did they merge together? Well, I can only, I'll start out speaking autobiographically that I first read the Bible when I was uh, really very small. I was five years old. I I learned to read somewhat precociously. And I remember re- looking through the Bible, and, uh, and this was, of course, the Old Testament. We were Jewish. Uh, and I remember telling my mother there was something that scared me something about a great wind come out of the north. And I later recognized this as the the vision of Ezekiel. And still later, I realized that many have seen Ezekiel's vision as an early account of UFOs. So that I think in my mind... Ezekiel, who was, who's, uh, who was for many years the center of my scholarly attention, was closely connected with the whole issue of UFOs. And by the way, I still think that is the case. I believe, I, I, I don't believe Ezekiel saw a spaceship, but that I don't think a, a UFOs are spaceships. I think they are, let's, I, I've often called them visitors from inner space that, 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 that our, our encounter with our internal alien and I think Ezekiel did have some encounter with something from his unconscious, which has produced a vision unparalleled anywhere in the Bible. It's uh, any of your listeners, if they can pull down a Bible from their shelves and open it to Ezekiel chapter one, they can read it. And they will see there things that 
can give the impression of being something very much like the modern UFO phenomenon. Ezekiel sees first one wheel on the earth, and then he sees four wheels in the sky. Uh, they're, they're, their appearance being like a wheel within a wheel. Uh, the wheel's rims are full of eyes round about. And some of your listeners will know that part of the vision from that beautiful African-American spiritual, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. So yeah, I think this is relevant to the UFO issue, not in that Ezekiel is seeing spaceships, but in that Ezekiel, like modern UFO experiencers, has encountered something from beyond his conscious awareness that he is not in conscious control of. Your your listeners will realize as I speak that I am heavily, heavily influenced by depth psychology in understanding the UFO phenomenon. I find Freud very useful, and I find Jung still more useful. In the, um, you also go on to mention a tendency of Jewish literature called Merkava, which may be you can correct me, uh, is influenced by the Ezekiel vision. Uh, I, I guess for, for our listeners, uh, you can define what is Merkava. And uh, interestingly, in the book you mentioned, they think of the Merkava experience as a descent rather than as an ascension. Uh, why uh, you, you, you say that scholars have been perplexed for this, perplexed by this for centuries and millennia, uh, do you have any speculation of your own why they uh, define that as a descent rather than an ascension? Okay, first of all, let's let's clear up some vocabulary that Merkava, it's the Hebrew word for chariot, and it became in rabbinic Judaism a collective term for the totality of the vision that Ezekiel describes. In, in chapter one. Ezekiel himself never calls it the Merkava, but from a fairly early uh, early time, that word was applied to it. Then later, it comes to be applied to what appear to be a group of people who seek to journey to the Merkava to re-experience what Ezekiel saw. And they refer to themselves as Yodei Merkava, those who go down to the Merkava, which has perplexed scholars because, after all, the Merkava is in the sky and you want to go up to it. Now, it seems to me that this language reflects an experience of descent in the course of what I am assuming is, this will sound paradoxical, but you, you'll, 
you 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 know what I mean a a, a genuine hallucinatory experience. You experience things that don't exist, but your experience is itself genuine and real. And in that experience, you sense yourself going down. And I found myself struck that this happens among those who remember or are made to remember under hypnosis their abductions into UFOs. That uh, in the, 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 there's one case I cited in the book where where the the woman who's being hypnotized says, "I'm going down. I'm going under the earth," and the hypnotist who knows perfectly well she ought to be going into the sky says, "Ooh, aren't you going the wrong in the wrong direction?" And she says, "I don't know. I don't understand it, but I'm going down." And I think this reflects the sense of plunging into the unconscious. Of course, we do not literally plunge the unconscious, assuming you believe in it, which I do very much. The unconscious is not a location somehow beneath us. And yet in envisioning, interacting with the unconscious, it's natural to think of it as a plunging, a descent into yourself. And that, I think, is where the phrase descent to the Merkava comes from and is a link between that ancient experience of these anonymous descenders we do not really know what historical epoch to put them in, whether, as some think, it's the late, ant- the late antique world or others think it's the early Islamic world. But whenever, whenever they were, it seems to me that their experience is parallel to that of UFO experiencers, suggesting to me not that aliens were and are kidnapping humans, but rather that this is something hardwired into the human psyche that appears in different historical contexts. I guess um, continuing in the tradition of, I guess, Judaic Mer- Merkava, I you cite the the scholar Gershom Shalom, um, and I uh, I don't know if you agree with him, but do, do, do you agree with his assessment that Paul from the New Testament, the Paul that you know wrote the epistles, uh, was had Merkaba experiences when in one of the epistles he says he got caught up into the third heaven. Yeah, I I I I, I, I think I would go along with Sholem. I mean, I don't know if there's any formal affiliations or connections between Paul and the almost certainly later individuals who created the literature of the descent to the Merkava, but I think they were experiencing similar things. Uh, Are there any other religious traditions that I guess have in... in, um 
that have a parallel to the Merkaba in uh, Judaism that have these UFO type uh, dissensions? It's a good question. I can't think of any that are quite like it. Now, in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad is supposed to have had an ascension experience. And curiously, in one of the sources for it, Muhammad is made to say, then I was brought down. And that seems to reflect a similar a similar sense of going down to that of the Merkava journeyers. But, I mean, Islam has a very rich mystical tradition, and I do not think that sort of descent or journey plays any significant role in it. And I am not aware of anything similar from Christian mysticism. What do you make of all the the, the stuff now about UAPs uh, in the past few years? Do you think that uh, do you think uh, mythology is being uh, brought forth again? I think so. I think I think something very significant has been happening, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, it's. It seemed to me that it reached the zenith of its popularity in 2020 and perhaps 2021. And there, I think, the UFOs were mirrors of an alien invader that had, in fact, penetrated our world, a very hostile alien invader not, however, called UFO, but C-O-V-I-D. Uh, but the, the, the roots of this, though, go back several years earlier. It seems to me that a major, major cultural shift happened at the end of 2017 when the New York Times, the august old gray lady of the newspaper world, the all the news that's fit to print newspaper, which for decades had looked down its collective nose with a sneer at UFOs, all of a sudden ran twin UFO stories on its front page. And I think this, the, something seismic was going on then. I think it is probably connected with the seismic event in our politics of the election of Donald Trump. And if you want, I can speculate on the link, but that would I would be spinning off into conjecture. Now it's resurfacing in another form with the fascination with the Chinese spy balloon. 
which in some which on obviously the the balloons the the and I'm using the plural because there seems to have been a number of other cases after the initial spy balloon uh that these things are obviously real, they're obviously earth-made, and yet they seem to trigger some of the same fascination that the UFOs do, and in some ways they echo events from the beginning of the UFO era. And I'm thinking here primarily of Roswell, New Mexico. And we can go more into that if you want. Yeah, we can. Uh, what is it about Roswell, New Mexico that you would want to unpack for us? That initially, I mean, there are different aspects. Roswell is an extremely complex issue. Uh, and I think we have to make a distinction between the original fall of debris on a ranch about 85 miles to the north of Roswell and the subsequent development of the tradition into what I call a myth of mortal divinity that involves the people remembering that they had seen not only a crashed object, but alien alien bodies connected with that object. But originally, it was just originally uh, no one mentioned bodies when the Roswell first uh, be- hit the newspapers in 1947. No, the, no one, no one said anything about bodies. Instead, there was de- debris that came down on this ranch, and that for some reason or other, the officers at Roswell Army Airfield were fascinated with that they collected it, sent it off to higher headquarters in Fort Worth, where it was explained as a weather balloon, the remains of a weather balloon. And the Fort Worth newspaper ran photos of what's plainly the relics of a weather balloon. And wh- one of the questions that that's bothered me is why did they get so excited over what was so obviously a mundane object? And I'm here disregarding uh, the 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 common assertion by ufologists that the the relics of the balloon weren't the actual debris that was discovered, but something substituted for it. I think they were precisely what was discovered. Why would they be so excited about a balloon? And to me, the answer is clear. It's provided by our current uh, the current uh, crisis over the Chinese balloon. That yes, they knew that this was a balloon, but they didn't know whose it was. Roswell burst out into the world at the beginning of the Cold War. Who knew 
but that the Soviets might not have established a nest of spies just across the Mexican border from which it was sending balloons, spy balloons, to pry into our military secrets. In that and there is direct evidence that some of the officers at Roswell Army Airfield at first thought these balloons were Russian. It turned out that the balloon was Russian. It turned out that it wasn't. And so everybody just forgot about it. But that concern over a possible spy balloon seems to me eerily mirrored in what we're experiencing today with the Chinese balloon or balloons. And why do you think people want to make that jump to it's an earthly uh, aerial phenomenon to it is extraterrestrial? Does it give us comfort of some sort or what? What, what what does it provide psychologically to think to think like that? It provides access to the truly alien. And extraterrestrial is the only model that we have to conceive true alienness. Now in the book I suggest that there are alien things within us, that the UFOs can function as symbolic representations of. And the most important of these, it seems to me, is death, which is at the heart of the Roswell story. This is why I called my book Intimate Alien. Our death is the most alien thing that I can conceive. In fact, if it's true, as I think the standard scientific opinion is, that after we die, we simply cease to exist, that is the most alien thing that I was going to say that I can conceive, but it's impossible for me to conceive. None of us can truly conceive of ourselves not existing. And so it is more alien than the most distant galaxy. And yet it's also bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, born inside us at the moment of our birth. Because all our lives we carry our death within us. And it seems to me that the UFOs have their power because in addition to other things they convey, they do convey this terrible, ungraspable paradox of what we are as mortal beings. I don't know that that's comforting except in the sense that by recognizing it, by seeing a mirror of our death 
in the UFO, we have some way of facing it, as Perseus had when he faced Medusa in the mirror of his shield, faced her without being turned to stone. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great way to end the interview uh, with that brilliant answer. Um, uh, before we go, we usually like to ask our guests, uh, are they, do they have any current writing projects? Are they working at, on anything new? Uh, yeah, I am working on a novel now about Israel during the Yom Kippur War of 1973, which really is not about UFOs. You may be aware that I published with Viking Press back in 2011 a novel called Journal of a UFO Investigator, which expresses many of the same things as I did non-fiction in Intimate Alien. Uh, this would be my second attempt to convey what I think are important truths about religion in fiction. I'm working on a translation from the Hebrew of an extraordinary Kabbalistic text of the 18th century, which I think is intended as the charter of a the world religion of the future rooted in Kabbalistic Judaism, but unlike any religion ever known. And I have just started up again after a hiatus of about a year blogging on UFOs, religion, and related subjects on my website, www.davidhalperin.net. Uh, and my first blog of the new series, which I put up just yesterday, is about the Chinese spy balloon. David, so, thank you so much for the interview. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be your guest.